Let us pray. Gracious God, as we gather together around your word, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. You brought us here this afternoon for a purpose, and we pray that that purpose would be accomplished for your glory. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be with you this morning, or this afternoon. It's tempting to call it this morning because normally... We meet in the mornings, but we should be out of that pattern by now. Uh, how long is it that we've been meeting in the afternoon, 4.30 in the afternoon at Wycliffe College? And over the summer, we've been looking at the Psalms together. And this afternoon, it falls to me to expound Psalm 100, 118. And as Keith intimated, you should already have received a couple of handouts one is a half-page outline of the sermon, and then the other is a copy of the psalm itself, which I'm grateful to Keith for reading in a different way in the last, at the last minute. And I also have another handout that I want to give you in just a minute, but I thought that I would overwhelm you if you got all three handouts and this one has got pictures in it. So I was afraid that you were going to look at the pictures and not listen to the sermon until I came to the part with the pictures. So there's one more handout to be given. So Roger or Evan or someone just be on standby to, to hand that out. So thank you. All right. Well, uh, we look at the, at, the, at, the, um, at the outline. I've titled our meditation this afternoon, A Reason to Shout and Give Thanks. And that's because our God saves. His covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Notice the first part of the psalm in bold. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The last verse reads exactly the same way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, it doesn't take a, a very gifted student of the Bible to surmise that the psalmist wants us to give thanks to the Lord, for his covenant love is everlasting. So that's the theme of our sermon this afternoon, giving thanks to the Lord who saves and whose covenant love lasts forever. The psalm uh, in the summons to give thanks, a title to which I have assigned the first four verses, continues. And um, someone says, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Someone says, the same person says, let the house of Aaron, maybe the priests say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. My friends, this is an exhortation for us to give thanks to God and to praise God because his steadfast love endures forever. Now, let's figure out for just a minute what that word steadfast love means. It's one of the words that's talked about right up there with um, hallelujah and amen. You've no doubt, if you've been to church more than a few times, heard someone talk about this, this word for 
Um, steadfast love. One article describes it as follows. It can be translated variously. And here's a list of things that, that can be used to translate. Kindness, love, loyalty, unfailing kindness, unfailing love, devotion, mercy, joint obligation, faithfulness, goodness, gracious. Goodness, gracious. Is that a term that anybody ever used when, when you were growing up? I think it was my grandmother or my mother used to say those things together. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, that's what the word hesed means. It means goodness gracious, devotion. And I've chosen to translate it um, steadfast love. Someone uh, defines it as follows. The term hesed can be defined as behavior that is appropriate for an agreed upon relationship. Behavior that is appropriate for an agreed upon relationship. He continues, this relationship can be between one human being or between God and his people. Within God's covenant relationship with his people, God always upholds his side of the relationship. That is, he unfailingly exercised loving care for his relationship partners. God desires, of course, the writer continues, that his relationship partners reciprocate this relational faithfulness. However, it would take the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, whose faithfulness represents that of all who put their faith in him, for the human side of God's covenant relationship to be finally upheld as God upholds us. So we're talking about a word for a relationship, and it's the kind of word that you would hope uh, would emulate the behavior of your spouse or your business partner um, or your best friend or your God. And what the psalmist is saying is give thanks to the Lord because his covenant love lasts forever. So in the moments that remain with us this morning, I want to take a look at four moments four kind of lifetimes that this psalm points to. Uh, and one is the original context of the psalm. I remember a few weeks ago, uh, Reverend Ganser saying that when he was preaching a psalm, he wasn't sure which moment in the psalm's life to preach. And that's kind of a challenge because these psalms take on a life of their own. And in some cases, they even get recycled. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And of course, it lives within us as a congregation as well. So I want us to begin. I'm sorry if there's a young one who thinks I'm yelling. Maybe I am. That, pardon me? Oh, he bumped his head. Okay. All right. I may be yelling as well. I'll, uh, Keith warned me that the microphone is pretty loud here. I dare not adjust it or else Stephen's going to have to fix it on the Zoom thing. So uh, we're going to begin by looking at the moment uh, that spawned the writer to write this psalm. And that is a king who experienced victory in battle. That's the original context of the psalm. And then we're going to look at three other contexts briefly. We're going to look at the, at the context of the psalm in the book of Psalms because it has kind of a, a reincarnated life. It, it has been recycled and given a particular place in the book of Psalms. And then we're going to see its faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness realized in the time of Jesus. I wonder if you noticed as you were reading the Psalm that those parts that were in italics 
are ones that the congregation has said about Jesus or that Jesus himself has said. So let's take a look at the psalm then, and I encourage you to use the one that's not in the bulletin just because I have some, some notes and uh, we've already been referring to it. So in verses 1 to 4, we have a summons to give thanks to the Lord for his covenant loyalty is everlasting. Take, for example, case 1. An ancient king of Judah uh, was involved in battle, and he nearly got killed, <clears throat> And he survived. And so he's bearing testimony to the fact that God's covenant faithfulness came to his rescue. And so he's singing a song of thanksgiving. And so um, I've put in verse 5 the word king and colon. And in verses 5 to 7, there's kind of a summary of the psalmist's plight. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. He answered and he set me free. It literally says something like, I was in a tight spot, and I called to the Lord, and he answered me and put me in a broad place. So here the psalmist is in a tight spot, and God has granted him space. And then he turns around, and he kind of moralizes. He says, the Lord's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph upon those who hate me. So the psalmist, the king, has experienced God's salvation and has experienced the faithful covenant loyalty of the Lord. And so he passes on some wisdom in the first of two elaborations consisting of seven verses. Uh, the first seven-verse elaboration comes in verses 8 to 14, and a second uh, seven-verse elaboration comes in verses 15 to 21, and each is ended by... He has become my salvation. God is my deliverer. His covenant faithfulness has come through for me. He's become my salvation, and therefore I want to give thanks to him. So in the first of these seven verse elaborations, he says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord even than to trust in princes. My friends, God is the answer to our plight because his covenant faithfulness comes in for us and rescues us. And then he goes on to talk about the details of his uh, situation. Uh, scholars probably rightly surmise that the king was involved in some kind of a battle against foreign countries. Nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And then he compares them to bees in verse 12. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. And in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And then the psalmist says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I want you to notice that he switched gears. And this is going to become important in a minute when we come to our second incarnation of um, this psalm. This is the language of Exodus 15. This is the language that Moses used uh, to celebrate the deliverance of, Egypt, of, uh, of Israel from Egypt at the time of the Exodus. And it's not surprising in light of this that this psalm actually has become a traditional psalm that is used during the Passover service. It's been like this for centuries. And it's, um, it's quite certain 
that um, before Jesus went out into the Garden of Gethsemane, after he had celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, that they sang this psalm before he went to the Garden. And so there's imagery here of the king's victory as being another case of rescue. And so as a result of the king's rescue, um, the people are rejoicing. What happened in Afghanistan over the past few weeks? The head of the government lost and he fled the country. And all of a sudden, it's not a circumstance that involves the king and the head of the country, but involves the whole country. So when the king loses out, the people lose out. Uh, but when the king wins, the people win. And so as a result of the salvation that this king experienced, there were glad songs of salvation in the tents of the righteous. And then the congregation joins in and picks up on the theme of the Exodus. And they say, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The psalmist continues, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. He's saying, I was rescued from um, uh, a dire situation in battle, and I can live to tell the day, or I can, I can live to, uh, to tell the tale, but my tale will rather be of one of praise to God. And if you flip the page over to verse 19, we get a bit of a surprise, and we realize that already within the context of this psalm, it's taken on another life. Originally, it's a song of victory that the king sung, but it's become apparent from verse 19 to 21 that this victory song of the king has become part of a liturgy, a celebration liturgy uh, that was used when the king came back into the temple, and he's um, asking someone to open the gates of the righteous that he may enter and give thanks to the Lord. And then uh, someone says, maybe it's a priest, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And then again, the psalmist says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Um, I am a low church Anglican. And um, every year I go to West Africa and hang out with some Orthodox um, Anglo-Catholics, high church Anglicans. And I was there one day when they had um, a, um, a ceremony where the bishop was at the door of the church and he banged on the door with his, uh, with his crook. And uh, he said, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And the response came back, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And then he said, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. And then there was a procession coming into the cathedral um, once the doors were opened and um, the, the bishop and other clergy came marching through in kind of a victory um, procession. And I, I thought, I don't know, I wasn't used to it. So I thought this was kind of weird, uh, but actually this is um, a, a replaying of the role of the king who came into the temple and who marched in through the gates to celebrate the salvation of God. And then in the third part of the psalm, we have the response of the people. And their response uh, includes um, various things, but they seem to be cries. There's a, there's a, a, a change of petition. There is a cry for self, a call for salvation. There's a blessing. There's a, a burst of praise. Uh, there's an ask for help. 
And you'll notice in verses 22 and in 25 and 26, these are words that are used um, by the people, uh, at least in 25 and 26, they're used by the people in the time of our Lord. And the Lord actually uses verse 22 in Matthew 21 and 42 to say um, that he is the one whom the builders has rejected and has become the cornerstone. So this, in a way, is a messianic psalm. It has language that is picked up and that kind of echoes the experience of our Lord Jesus. But in the first instance, it was sung by a king who had a close call and who was rescued. There's something about us in our culture that makes us cynical. And uh, I, I'm an heir of that. And so I was thinking, you know, what if, what if you're a member of a congregation and you're wanting to give thanks to the Lord because he has rescued you, but you didn't get rescued in the way that you thought you should? Uh, you were hoping for something. You know, you were hoping for that big break at work that you had been praying for. You were hoping that, um, that someone who would, would be healed of an illness, and they weren't. Can you still sing, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever? Are you tempted maybe to say, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love has a pretty good batting average. Well, that's a really interesting question. And I want us to look at another moment in the life of this psalm that bears testimony to the fact that, no, God's covenant love endures forever. And that takes us to the second part of the outline when I come to the point to talk about God's, faith, God's covenant faithfulness hoped for at a time when there was no king in Israel. I mean, think about it. The Babylonians came. They destroyed the temple. No knocking on the door anymore, folks. No going through those gates of righteousness. They're lying in the ground. They're covered in dust. They've been burned. There's no king on the throne. There's still someone who's an heir of David, but he's, uh, you know, he's been carried off into captivity. So is God's covenant faithfulness still coming through at that point? And here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing with Evan or Roger or somebody, and I'm going to hand out. I, I don't want to leave Keith out. Uh, and I want us to move to looking at the role that this psalm plays in the book of Psalms. Now this is a bit of a this is a bit of a curveball, uh, and actually part of my sermon is not simply about Psalm 118, but it's about the role of Psalm 118 and other psalms in the whole book. And as as the uh, as the as the um, as my little pictures are being passed around, maybe we should have kept the kids upstairs because we've got drawings and, and pictures and diagrams. I want to use an illustration to show you um, something about the Psalms that you might not know. Uh, and uh, don't be too worried by the pictures quite yet. I'll, I'll draw attention to them. But I want to, I want to, uh, to draw your attention to, to what I'm doing in general. Did you, you remember the first time you ever learned how they made a movie? Um, and somebody took a bunch of cards and they flipped the cards in a sequence and you saw a still figure kind of come to life and started moving as they flipped through the picture. 
Well, all of those individual single shot scenes when run one next to the other and flipped through quickly actually generated a moving picture. Well, around about 1980 or so, scholars of the Old Testament noticed again that if you take the Psalms, 1 to 150, and you do that kind of flip card thing, that the whole book of Psalms actually tells a story in much the same way that one of Paul's epistles might or one of the prophets might. So I want us to, to uh, just kind of switch gears and to take a look at the book of Psalms as a whole. And I have uh, four diagrams. The first is to give you the big picture. And the big picture is like um, a building like this. It's got an entrance and it's got a conclusion. And I want you to remember that the book of Psalms consists of five books. We don't talk about them very often. I don't think you notice it in your prayer book, but if you turn to your Bible, you'll notice that there's book uh, one, which is Psalms 1 to 41. Book two, Psalms 72 to 70, or Psalms 42 to 70, uh, 72. Then there's 73 to 89. Then there's 90 to 106. And then there's 106, 107 to 150. So the book consists of five books. Uh, running from 1 to 150. And Psalms 1 and 2 are understood to introduce the book of Psalms. They are at the very beginning. They're like an entryway. And at the very back, Psalms 146 to 50 are the conclusion to the book of Psalms. And you see, I've got PTL on the door. What does PTL stand for? Anybody with a Pentecostal background or other background? Most any Christian. PTL is? Praise the Lord. That, that sounded kind of, praise the Lord. That's right. Psalms 146 to 150 begin and end with praise the Lord. So um, I want us to, uh, to look at the first, at the first two. Uh, and diagram number two has uh, an enlargement of the doorway. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together constitute an introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, as you might remember, goes like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, uh, and so on, and talks about him being a keeper of the law and someone who promises prosperity if you follow God's teaching. So door number one is what's called the door of the pious law keeper. And then Psalm 2, and this is important, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And because it stands at the front door of the psalms, it casts a shadow over the whole book. And Psalm 2 says that the book of psalms in its entirety is about Israel's Messiah in one fashion or another. Think about Jesus talking about how important the psalms were to him and how the psalms pointed to a Messiah who suffered. Well, I think Jesus had a holistic understanding of the book of Psalms. So if you want to enter into the book of Psalms, uh, you need to be reminded of the importance of meditating upon the law. You get a fresh reminder right off the bat that there's this king of the Jews, who's God's anointed son, who's not to be underestimated. Um, he's the one who governs the nations. And then um, if you turn to the third diagram, on the back of the second page, you'll see that on the floor, there is played out as a theme, two alternatives for who the king is. Now, of course, God has always been the king. 
And uh, David was the king only for a short time. But those who have looked at the way that the Psalms unfold have noticed that in Psalms 1 to 89, there's an emphasis on David as the king. Um, and then in books 4 and 5, Psalms 90 to 145, there's a relative emphasis on the Lord as king. So if you look at the top of the third diagram, I say the key question is, given the apparent failure of the Davidic kingship in Psalm 89, how will the kingly hope of the whole book, David and Yahweh, be fulfilled? Well, I missed out a part, and it's on the diagram. In Psalm 89, the Lord's covenant faithfulness seems to have crashed. The king's crown is lying in the dust, and the Psalms that lead up to 89 lead us to conclude that the son of David, the royal son of David in this case, might have been tempted not to say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. He might have been tempted to say, well, I was taught to say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever, but the king was killed. And so there's a crisis within the book of Psalms itself that uh, implies a switch from David as king to Yahweh as king. And some three psalms after the king dies in 89, we have a fresh announcement that Yahweh has become king. Well, I realize I'm being a bit obtuse at this point, but I hope the penny is going to drop. Let me ask the key question again, and then we'll come to the place of Psalm 118 in the structure of the book of Psalms. Key question, given the apparent failure of the Davidic kingship in Psalm 89, how will the kingly hope of the whole book, David is king and Yahweh is king, be fulfilled? Well, let me, let me put it another way. If the book of Psalms is about Israel's Messiah, which it is by virtue of Psalm 2, then what kind of a king is going to fulfill the hope that's embodied in the whole psalm? Well, stay with me because the penny's going to drop. And I think, it's, I think it's amazing the way it points to our Lord. Well, the kind of Messiah who's going to fulfill the whole book of Psalms is somebody who is a pious teacher of the law, somebody who pronounces beatitudes and who says, blessed are those who follow the way of the Lord, like the, like the speaker of Psalm 1 said. And according to Psalm 2, he's going to have to be a son of David, the king of the Jews, who's underestimated by a whole lot of people, but who ends up being uh, the most important person in the whole room by the end of it. He's going to have to be somebody who embodies the life of David and who experiences a lot of suffering uh, that's described in Psalms like Psalm 22 and in Psalms like Psalm, Psalm 3. He's also going to have to be somebody who dies, because that's what happened to the king in 89. But here we have a problem. To fulfill the messianic hope that's embodied in the whole book of Psalms, well, King David's also going to have to be Yahweh. Well, is the Messiah both the son of David and Yahweh? I mean, is that really possible? Well, of course, you know, all of the crowd, the Christian crowd is saying, yes, Jesus is Lord. He's the son of David and he's the son of God. 
So if you look at the fourth diagram, you'll notice it's kind of an elaboration of the Yahweh is King section in Psalms 90 to 145. And in the zone where you would expect King David to be dead, if you took Psalm 89 literally, he seems to have been revived. And in Psalm 110, the voice of David is giving witness to there being someone who is an intermediary between God and humanity. And in Psalm 118, again, there's a story of a king who nearly gets killed, but in this case, who says, um, I'm living to tell the day. But there's also a statement in verse 26 where the psalmist the royal figure is saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalmist is pointing to a mystery figure. It's not God, it's not himself, but it's someone who's coming, who's going to come in the name of the Lord, and who is going to offer blessings from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Um, so Psalm 110 and Psalm 118 and Psalm 132 are pointing, and if you look on diagram number, page, the fourth diagram, and I've underlined it, it says that after the, the king dies, he, he comes back to life again. And a Moses-like priestly David is back from the dead as a go-between, between the human and the divine. You'll notice in verse 14 of Psalm 118, it's the voice of Moses uh, the king is, is uh, taking on the words of Moses and saying, I'm kind of like an Exodus figure. I'm like Moses, who's bringing the Israelites out of, um, out of slavery. God has become my salvation, and I have become a means of salvation. So in other words, um, the book of Psalms points to Jesus as the Messiah uh, in a remarkable way. But notice Psalm 118. Uh, there was a time when you might have been tempted not to sing that song because the king was dead. I mean, you know, you've been carried off into exile. But my friends, this is, this is really where the lesson comes through in terms of the second message of the psalm. Even when it seems as though God's covenant loyalty has failed you, don't believe it. Nothing could be more clear that the Babylonians have carried off the king, the temple is gone, and there is no more king. But you see what the Spirit of God did with this psalm. The Spirit of God inspired David or whomever to write it. And then at a time when there was a dark moment and when people might have been questioning God's covenant faithfulness, it was placed in a songbook and bore witness to the fact that we believe that God's covenant faithfulness is everlasting despite the circumstances. So, my friends, God's covenant faithfulness is everlasting. And if we had any question as to the reality and the truth of that, we simply need to go to chapter 3, which is the third part and the fourth part are coming quickly. God's covenant faithfulness was exemplified in the time of victorious King David, or of a Davidic king. That's Psalm 118. God's covenant faithfulness was hoped for through the continued use of Psalm 118, at a time when there was no Davidic king. Thirdly, God's covenant faithfulness was realized in the time of Jesus, the eternal Davidic king. And we know that's a good news story, 
But think about it for a minute. If you're one of the disciples the day after Good Friday, it looks as though things are bad all over again. And you might just say, well, I was tempted to give thanks to God for his covenant faithfulness because I thought it was everlasting, but my Messiah is dead. And um, Jesus is in a grave. So it's time to go to the Galilean fish, right? Game over. Because the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, they killed the king. But as in the book of Psalms, the king came back to life. And he's now the cornerstone, the founder and the builder of the church. So my friends, what am I saying? I'm saying that God's covenant faithfulness, whether it appears so or not, continues and lasts forever. The last part of Psalm 118 played a role in the time of Jesus. And it just gives a testimony to the fact that Psalm 118 just kind of keeps living on. And in the response of the people in verses 22 to 29, you'll notice that there are certain expressions that, that, uh, that became um, synonymous with people's cry for another Messiah to come, for a son of David to come who would uh, liberate them from the Israelites, or who would liberate them, sorry, from the, uh, from the Romans. Uh, and Jesus came and he was killed, but he brought salvation in a whole different way. He brought salvation. And so in Matthew chapter 21, you'll notice, if you remember, that um, Hosanna, uh, in verse 25, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they happen at the triumphal procession. Jesus is riding on a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah, and he's marching into Jerusalem. My friends, he's coming from the Mount of Olives, and what does he do next? He enters the temple. Open to me the gates of righteousness. And then when Jesus is telling, in also in Matthew 21, later on, he's telling the story of the parable of the vineyard workers. And he concludes that by saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he's saying, you guys are going to kill me. But I'm telling you that the stone which you guys have rejected is coming back, and he's going to be the foundation stone of a whole new people, and that people are us. Give thanks to the Lord, brothers and sisters, because God's covenant faithfulness is everlasting. And the fourth chapter is sitting right here in front of us this morning, or this afternoon. It's afternoon, Glenn, afternoon. And that consists of three people who are bearing witness to the fact that they want to give thanks and bear witness to God's continued covenant loyalty, even to this day. God has been working in their lives. I hope we'll hear a short testimonial. And you'll see that even through dark times, God has come through and his covenant faithfulness is indeed everlasting. Let's conclude by saying together the bold words in the beginning, and let's say it twice over. Uh, in the way that the psalm wants us to. Psalm 118, verse 1, together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.